ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Monday the 8th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Bulk billing rates at GP clinics are continuing to slide, with new data revealing less than a quarter are bulk billing all of their patients. Patients who are bulk billed don't pay anything, with GPs instead choosing to accept a reduced fee from the federal government through Medicare. A survey of thousands of clinics by an online healthcare directory has found hundreds switched from wholly bulk billing to private billing last year, as Stephanie Smale reports. When she retired to Queensland two years ago, Jan was relieved to find a bulk billing GP to help her manage multiple health issues, including kidney disease. But the 70-year-old says that changed last year. All of a sudden, on one of the visits, they told me they were no longer bulk billing and my husband and I are both on pensions. She needs to see someone every couple of months for tests and pain management, but now can't afford it. My last visit at the doctor's, I actually burst into tears because we were having financial difficulty and she actually did bulk bill that visit and that's not something she's been doing. Jan's GP isn't the only one that stopped bulk billing, according to new data from the online healthcare directory Clean Bill. They called more than 6,000 clinics to ask if they bulk bill every patient that comes through their doors and just over 24% answered yes which means that fewer than one in four clinics across the country will still bulk bill every single patient who comes to them. James Gillespie is Clean Bill's founder. He says between January and November last year, more than 500 clinics switched from being wholly bulk billing to private billing. You asked clinics if they bulk billed every patient and if they didn't, you didn't count that as bulk billing. But a lot of those Mm -hmm. clinics would be bulk billing some patients. Why did you do it that way? The reason that we've captured the data this way is it shows that regardless of what group you belong to, this data will say whether or not you're likely to be bulk billed. We thought that asking about every single patient coming into the clinic was the best way to do that. The Royal Australian College of General Practitioners concedes bulk billing rates are slipping. Here's college president Dr Nicole Higgins. Practices are finding and GPs that if they're to fully bulk bill, they simply can't keep their doors open. So what needs to change for more people to be bulk billed? The first thing that needs to happen is we need to invest in general practice. General practice only accounts for 6.5% of our total healthcare spend. But Dr Higgins points out the overall bulk billing rate is closer to 75% across Australia because most clinics will offer some patients bulk billing. She's acknowledged the federal government's funding boost so far but argues they need to go further. If I was a patient, I'd be pretty cranky that the federal government doesn't value the rebate that they get back when they see their GP. So we need to make sure that that patient's rebate is increased. In a statement, the Federal Health Minister Mark Butler says a $3.5 billion bulk billing incentive for vulnerable patients started in November to help more than 11 million Australians access GP care, particularly in regional and remote areas. 
That report from Stephanie Smale and Jacqueline Breen. It's Victoria's turn to be dealing with severe weather with a major flood warning for the Campaspe River in the central north of the state and minor flood warnings for half a dozen others. It was only a couple of months ago that we were told to brace for hot and dry conditions after an El Nino weather pattern was declared. So, after a cyclone and deadly flooding in eastern states, why has summer been so wet? As Kathleen Ferguson reports, our oceans have a big role to play. Heavy rainfall across the country has flooded homes, roads and has taken lives in the last few weeks. People affected by the downpour have watched on in disbelief. This is catastrophic, the amount of water. Look at that. In New South Wales alone, the State Emergency Service has received more than 2,000 calls for help over the Christmas New Year period. Volunteer Sunny Barnett performed about 10 flood rescues in a matter of days. Definitely have been surprised as everyone was thinking it was going to be a hot summer with bushfires and we all thought floods had gone, but um, I don't think that's the case so far. But, yeah, definitely been busy and yeah, we're very surprised by it. The organisation's assistant commissioner is Nicole Hogan. That particular 10 days um, was the busiest operational period the New South Wales SES has responded to since the conclusion of La Nina, which would have been um, March earlier 2023. What's made it so difficult for some to comprehend is this weather update from the Bureau of Meteorology's Dr Carl Braganza back in September. The Bureau is today declaring that an El Nino event is underway in the Pacific Ocean. A warning that Australians should brace for hot and dry conditions this summer with increased heat and fire hazards. In all likelihood um, we can expect that this summer will be hotter than average and certainly hotter than the last three years. Spring was dry and hot and we did have have extreme fire danger, but December has been very wet. In a statement, the Bureau of Meteorology told me September last year was Australia's driest on record. They also said no two El Ninos are the same, and they did forecast above-average severe weather risks for summer, including for thunderstorms and riverine flooding. Climate scientist from the University of Melbourne, Dr Andrew King, explains we are still certainly in an El Nino period, which is expected to weaken over the next few months. Yeah, this happens every few years. It's irregular, but... um on average happens every few years. When we look at the sea surface temperatures in the central and eastern Pacific, we do see a strong El Nino. So we are definitely in an El Nino, even though in Australia it doesn't feel like we are. But he says an El Nino isn't the only system affecting our weather. We have other influences uh, as well. There's something called the Southern Annular Mode, um, which at the moment is favouring wetter conditions. So that seems to be overpowering the El Nino signature at the moment. So Australia is influenced by, because we're, you know, a big island in between oceans, in between the Indian the Pacific Ocean and the Southern Ocean, we do experience really a very, very variable climate. So were we wrong to assume we'd be in for a dangerously hot summer? Not necessarily, because there have been hot and dry conditions influenced by El Nino already. But Dr King tells me Australia's weather is a lot more unpredictable than we might think. Like Australia has quite fickle weather patterns. We've really seen the whole gamut of, of what Australians can experience in the last few years with fires, floods and heat waves and droughts. Yeah, at the moment, I think a lot of people are expecting drier than normal conditions and it hasn't been that way. And the outlook shows we will still see warmer than average conditions going forward. So the land of droughts and flooding rains appears to be living up to its reputation.
Kathleen Ferguson reporting. As another group of Australian soldiers prepares to head to Ukraine to train its military recruits, other Aussies are helping out with the reconstruction effort. One Queensland builder has put his life on hold to help rebuild homes in war-torn Ukraine, inspiring other volunteers to do the same. Lily Nothling reports. As Manfred Hinn tinkers in his Townsville workshop, his heart and mind are thousands of kilometres away. The 66-year-old builder spent most of 2023 in Ukraine, rebuilding homes and schools reduced to rubble by Russian attacks. We've uh, been involved in rebuilding 53 houses. We put more than 150 people on the roof. It's a never-ending story, but you can't sit back and do nothing. Raised in post-war Germany, he's been horrified by the scale of devastation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So Manfred Hinn decided to do what he could to help. Last year, he linked up with Ukrainian charity Brave to Rebuild, becoming a mentor to young volunteers, teaching them construction skills, which are in high demand given the destruction in Ukraine. One, two. Danger is never far away. Every time it gets a bit too noisy from the rockets and from the artillery, I tell them to turn up ACDC so we don't hear it anymore. <laughs> and we keep going, you know, what can you do? The builders' efforts haven't gone unnoticed. On the other side of Australia, his story reached Tasmanian carpenter Hamish Sterling. It really struck a nerve with me, struck a chord. I thought it was a really effective way for me to contribute. I spent about three months learning Ukrainian by myself, just on apps on my phone. I just simply stopped working, put work on hold for three months and um, took over what tools I could fit in my luggage allowance. The 36-year-old split his time between two organisations to tackle the mammoth restoration task. They need all the volunteers they can, they can get to actually do the work. That's hugely important, of course, but having people there from other countries and letting the locals know that they're not forgotten and the world's still paying attention and that they, the world still cares is, is hugely uplifting for them. He was repaid with warm hospitality and lots of hugs. Oh, that and the homemade vodka. There was a bit of that floating around during work and, yeah, that really singes your insides. For Manfred Hinn, the job is far from over. He recently arrived home in Australia to fundraise and plans to return to Ukraine in the next few months. The average cost of rebuilding a house in Ukraine is $2,500, which is not a lot. We have hundreds of houses lined up where we need fundings for. The builder has already connected with dozens of tradespeople from across the world. Eventually, he wants to create a permanent network of builders without borders, inspiring more people to take their skills to the front line. That's the long-term goal because people need to be helped. It's Ukraine now, but it's crisis everywhere in the world. Townsville builder Manfred Hinn ending that report by Lily Nothling. The three men vying to become the next president of Indonesia have traded barbs about foreign policy in a debate ahead of next month's election. Indonesia's Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto is the clear leader in the polls, as Indonesia correspondent Bill Bertels reports. On a debate stage watched by tens of millions of people, 
an increasingly confident 72-year-old frontrunner and two men striving to be his main rival. Prabowo Subianto is hoping this year will be his third time lucky. Having lost the last two elections, he's now got the popular outgoing president, Joko Widodo's son, as his running mate. And in the second candidate debate of the campaign, Prabowo was asked about the region, China and foreign relations. And he said after a decade of relative stability in Indonesia, he's going to keep the country's low-profile approach going on the world stage. For international relations, the main thing is we have to strengthen Indonesia's economy. We have to protect our wealth. We have to make our people prosperous, and only then we will be respected and heard by other countries. The debate on foreign policy and defence was a rare topic diversion from domestic issues in this campaign. AM asked a Jakarta-based analyst, Jadidi Hanan, about where the candidates stand. Should we expect much difference between the three candidates on the issue of foreign policy? No. <laughs> that is the very short answer is no. One of Prabowo's rivals, Anis Baswedan, said the nation of 270 million people should play a more active role on the world stage. But Dr Jadadi Hanan says no matter who wins, the change of leader won't shake up the region. The three candidates are, in, in my view, are very pragmatic in terms of their uh, foreign policies. Indonesia should, should make uh, as good friendship as possible with all of the, the nations, including big powers. At the same time, Indonesia should not take any should not take any side. With Prabowo Subianto ahead in the polls, his two rivals are now competing not to necessarily win in February, but to come second with enough votes to force a runoff. Jadadi Hanan says whoever is knocked out in next month's vote will likely end up joining forces with the runner-up if there's a runoff. They need to put Prabowo as their common enemy. I think. There's still five weeks and a lot of campaigning to go until Indonesians go to the polls. This is Bill Birdles in Jakarta reporting for AM. In Bangladesh, Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has secured an historic fifth term with a landslide election victory. The lead-up to the poll was marred with deadly violence and a brutal crackdown on political dissent. South Asia correspondent Meghna Bali reports from Dhaka. The tension is palpable. Outside of Dhaka's press club, roads are blocked by a sea of protesters unhappy with Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina. A few kilometres away, a clash has broken out among hundreds of men standing opposite a polling station. They should be voting in their general election. Instead, they're calling for a boycott. I'm not a BNP, I'm not Awamili, I just ran my right to vote back. But Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has essentially been handed another five years in power after her government's main opposition, the Bangladesh Nationalist Party and several others shunned the election. Senior BNP leader Abdul Muin Khan defended their position. If our party takes, did take part in this election, then what would we do? We would have really been legitimising an unfair election. For decades, politics in the country has been dominated by two rival dynasties, led by Prime Minister Hasina and former PM Khaleda Zia. Zia's currently on house arrest, fighting what she says are trumped-up corruption charges. 
and the opposition has accused the government of taking control of the country's institutions and rigging the election. But Bahauddin Nasim, Joint General Secretary of the ruling Awami League, insists the vote has been free and fair. There are no restrictions to participate in election. There is no need to boycott. There is no restriction from government or ruling party. Human rights groups say that almost 10,000 activists have been arrested since a planned protest rally late last October, and at least 16 people have been killed. Activist Sanjida Islam says the majority of those cases have one thing in common. If you see the cases, the people were abducted and picked up by different law enforcement agencies. All were the ground-level activist or organiser, good organiser of the opposition political party. Despite the deadly violence in the lead-up, polling day was relatively calm, with the Electoral Commission reporting a 40% voter turnout. Now, Hasina Sheikh is back in power for the next five years, and it's got many people wondering if Bangladesh is turning into a one-party state. This is Meghna Bali in Dhaka, reporting for AM. Ahead of this week's presidential election in Taiwan, China has been renewing its threats, with China's President Xi Jinping saying reunification is inevitable. Many people in Taiwan have been taking civil defence classes, learning what to do if China invades or blockades the island. East Asia correspondent Kathleen Calderwood went along to one of those classes. China wants Taiwan to know it's preparing for conflict. Propaganda videos showing troops firing from behind sandbag barricades and hurling grenades into buildings during urban combat. In an office building in Taipei, Taiwanese residents are preparing too by taking civil defence classes. 32-year-old Mr Lin, who only wants to be known by his last name, is one of them. I have a fear of war, especially due to the war in Ukraine, which made me more worried. China has been increasing pressure on self-governed Taiwan over the past few years and hasn't ruled out the use of force to achieve reunification. While all young men in Taiwan are required to do formal military training, Mr Lin says the birth of his son made him reconsider how prepared he really is for a Chinese invasion or blockade. I felt a sense of panic. I thought, what if they attack? What should I do with my child? Where should I go for shelter? I was conscripted for one year, and that was about 12 years ago. Our mandatory military service in Taiwan isn't very comprehensive. We only touched a rifle, and it was an old model. Puma Shen, who is running in the upcoming election as part of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, says while increasing numbers are becoming interested in civil defence, more needs to be done to ensure as many people as possible are prepared. It's all about all this mental preparedness. I mean, the thing is that resilience is more about all this like, willingness to fight and resistance is more about all these practical skills. Two-thirds of participants are women who aren't required to do military training. 73-year-old Ali Chung has already done one course and plans to do another. My mother is in her 90s. Her mobility is quite limited due to her age. I hope that if I learn all these techniques and skills, I can help my family and neighbours. Puma Shen says while more people are becoming interested in civil defence, more needs to be done to ensure as many people as possible are prepared. Last year it became 2%. I mean 2% of them saying that, hey, I want to do civil defence. This year it's 11%. 
which means that they're, I mean, gradually growing, thinking that, hey, there's something I could do during the warfare. Everyone could play a role during the warfare. I mean, people started to recognize it. I think I, I'm still very optimistic about that. If war comes, every little contribution could help. This is Kathleen Coldwood in Taipei reporting for AM. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.